I'd like to invite you now to open your Bibles to Romans, first chapter, first verse. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. The verse reads this way, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. To remind you, Paul wrote this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for at least three reasons. First, he wanted to prepare the way for his intended visit to Rome. He evidently hoped that Rome would become a base of operations for him and, and support him in his missionary work to Spain. And in the western portions of the empire, Paul was starting in the east and he was moving to the west. And he needed a home base and perhaps this would be it. He also uh, wrote in this letter some advanced theology with regard to soteriology that would have provided a very solid foundation for this missionary activity. Sometimes we wonder why we study soteriology as believers. Well, one of the reasons why is so that we can be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. And that was one of the purposes that Paul had in mind when he wrote this letter. Another reason for writing Romans was undoubtedly his desire to minister to the spiritual needs of the Christians in Rome. Even though they were in good spiritual condition, generally speaking, already much like the church at Philippi. Rome was a good church, or probably was home to several good churches, plural. And every indication is that there were probably at least five house churches in the city of Rome at this time. The common problems of all early churches were dangerous to the Roman church as well. These, difficult, these difficulties included internal conflicts, primarily between Jewish and Gentile believers. Remember in Philippi, it was between two women. Here it's between two races of people. External threats from false teachers were also a problem in Rome. And so Paul gave both of these potential problems attention in this epistle, primarily in chapters 15 and 16. Paul also wrote Romans, as he did, because he was at a transition point in his ministry. As he mentions at the end of chapter 15, his ministry in the Aegean was solid enough that now he planned to leave it, he planned to move into the west and to two, into new missionary territory. But before he did that, Paul plans to leave Corinth, where he writes this letter from, and travel to Jerusalem, where he knows full well that he'll be in danger. And Paul probably writes Romans before he leaves to leave a full exposition of the gospel in good hands if his ministry ended prematurely in Jerusalem. The great contribution of this letter to the body of the New Testament is his reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. His reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. The message statement for the book of Romans would go like this. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. Now, in the first 17 verses of the book of Romans are introduction. The first seven are salutation, and the first 17 introduce the book as a whole. In the introduction, Paul's call as an apostle of Christ gives him the desire to share his spiritual gift for the purpose of strengthening the Christians at Rome. Now look at the salutation, which is actually seven verses long, much longer than the salutation in Paul's other letters. And we said last time the reason for that was because Paul had never been there. He had never ministered to the church at Rome personally. It's very likely that 
that some of Paul's converts had started this work, but Paul himself had never met most of the believers at Rome. That's why this salutation is longer than most. But there's a lot of theology in the salutation, so it'll take just a little bit of time for us to cover that. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake, among whom you are all among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to who to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might can imagine you can spend weeks and weeks just on those seven verses. They are full of theology. The introductory paragraph, which functions as a greeting, is more extensive than we find in any of Paul's other letters because he had never visited there. So except for the converts that probably started the church, he had never had the pleasure of meeting these folks at Rome. So that's why he's going to give an extended, uh, very extended greeting. In the opening paragraph, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul endeavors to introduce himself in just a few sentences. He wanted to tell people what he was all about in just a few sentences. I wonder wonder what I would say if I was placed in that same position. Somebody gives you a pen and pencil, puts a piece of paper in front of you, you're about to speak to an audience that you've never spoken to, and they say, here, write down something about yourself. Most of us are, would be pretty humble. I never do that. Last year I was, they were, I was speaking at a pastor's conference in California. They did just that. They wanted me to write a, write a paragraph introducing myself to these other pastors. I said, well, they know me. I wrote back and said, they know me already. I don't need to do that. Well, write back something. We want it to sound good, too, for the brochure. So I wrote down something like uh, Bruce M. Bumgardner, Pastor Pine Valley Bible Church, ministers in Houston, where he lives with his wife and three children, period. Boom. They roll back, this will not do. You know, everybody else's is almost a page long and yours is a sentence. I said, well, just let me let my preaching speak for me then. You know, but uh, so we, we kind of went back and forth. But in all seriousness, if you were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and you were going to write Scripture, how would you introduce yourself? Or how would you introduce yourself? What would, what would define who you really are in one or two sentences or maybe three sentences at the most? What makes you who you are? You might try it, just as an interesting exercise. You might try that in the quiet of your own soul, in the privacy of your own office, or or when everybody else has gone to bed. Just write down two or three sentences about who you are, who you are in Christ Jesus, as a person. And what defines you? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your relationship with God? And if it was, how would that work out? Dwight Pentecost at a chapel service in Dallas Seminary got up in front of everybody and he said, I want to ask you guys, uh, what do you want to do, what do you want to be, rather, when you finish Dallas Seminary? And the answers in the interaction was most, well, I'm going to pastor, I'm going to be an evangelist, uh, I'm going to uh, go to the mission field, I'm going to, uh, I want to teach at a seminary. And he said, you know, he's, he's got this mannerism to him, he just shook his gray head like this, and he said, I didn't ask you what you were going to do after seminary. He said, I asked you what you were going to be after you left seminary. And it's two different questions. 
What do you want to be? Who are you in Christ Jesus? That's what Paul writes down in these seven verses. And I would suggest that you might consider that exercise as well as time, um, as time goes on. The salutation, which is the first seven verses, can be divided into three parts. In the first verse, Paul introduces himself. In verses 2 through 6, Paul introduces his subject, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, Paul invokes God's blessing on his readers. Tonight, we're going to consider the first of these three parts. In other words, verse 1 only. Next week, we'll look at numbers 2 and 3 together, which will be verses 2 through 7. So if you're thinking, is he going to spend every, you know, a class on each verse? No, that won't be the case. But this first verse really does require a little bit of extra time. In the first verse, Paul introduces himself using three adjectival phrases. First, he calls himself a slave or a servant, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Then he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And finally, he says that he is set apart for the gospel of God, or it could be and should be translated for God's gospel. This letter isn't about Paul. This letter is about God and God's righteousness and how one might obtain that. But it does help us when it comes to interpreting and understanding the epistle to know something about the human author of this text. Any piece of scripture has a dual authorship, uh, what I would call a big A author and a little a author. The big A author of any letter or book of the Bible is God the Holy Spirit. The little a author varies. In the New Testament, Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament in terms of the number of words and verses than anyone else. Paul is a close second. Paul wrote more books, of course, but Luke and Acts, in terms of its total number of verses, is more. That, those are human authors. And the human author was moved by the Holy Spirit to write down what the Holy Spirit wanted written down without setting aside his own personality or his own writing style, or perhaps his own educational background. And so that's why the, the letters of Paul, Peter's, uh, Peter says, are more weighty than the ones that I wrote or ones that other people wrote. Uh, Paul had an incredible intellect. Paul was the perfect person to do what God wanted him to do. The perfect person at the perfect time in history, with the perfect birth and the perfect background. He was Everything went just right, and isn't that like a perfect God? to come up with the specific perfect person to be put in that position. Let's consider him just for a moment, not that we're studying him, not that we worship him, but we appreciate him, and we appreciate his faithfulness to this ministry, and it will help us to understand the letter, if we can understand just a little bit about Paul, because he does introduce himself. This letter is not an anonymous letter, anonymous letter like, say, the book of Hebrews. Paul lets us know that he wrote it, and his name is, comes first in the Greek text. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that God's message to God's people would be presented for God's glory. In doing so, he didn't set aside his own writing style, his educational background, or his rather strong personality. The Holy Spirit did not dictate this letter to Paul. He inspired him in the writing of it. Do you know the difference? Paul wasn't taking dictation. But the Holy Spirit did inspire Paul to write down the words. So the words actually are the words of God, even though they came through a human agent. 
Now, that human agent, in the case of the Apostle Paul, gave no resistance to God's complete and coherent message to his people coming through. I wish that that would happen with every sermon that every pastor preaches. But the sermons that you consider effective are the ones that the Holy Spirit uses, uh, you as the receptor, and uses me or another pastor as the one who is the presenter, and, and as little as interference can get in the way, the more powerful the message is. And the Apostle Paul had no interference in this, although it wasn't dictated. We don't believe at Pine Valley, nor in evangelical Christianity, in the dictation, most of evangelical Christianity, in the dictation uh, aspect or version of divine inspiration. Like the rest of Scripture, uh, the book of Romans is inerrant, which means that it is the very Word of God and is without error in all that it affirms. When we talk about inerrancy, we, we mean that the Bible is without error in all that it affirms. First word in the sentence is Paul, Paulus, Paulus. Paul was evidently the name by which he wished to be known in all of his letters. He never uses the name Saul, though according to Acts, that was how he was known at the time of his conversion and during the early part of his ministry and as a missionary from the church at Antioch. It would appear from Acts 13.9 that at the time he already had the name, the double name, Saul and Paul, the latter of which he used in his Greek circles. As a Roman citizen, Paul was probably part of the formal name that he was registered under as part of their law. Saul would have been his familiar name, which was his Jewish name, which persisted into adulthood. So when he was with his Jewish friends, I'm sure they called him Saul or Saul. When he was with his Greek friends, I'm sure they called him Paul or Paulus. He was born in the city of Tarsus in the region of Cilicia, in the region of Cilicia on the border of Asia Minor and Syria. Paul was by Roman, he's a Roman citizen by birth, but racially he was a Jew. Paul even came from the perfect place when it comes to preparing someone for this particular ministry. This is the city of Tarsus. This is where he was born. The city of Antioch, from which people were first called Christians in this city, the most powerful church in the first century was in Antioch, not in Jerusalem. But this over here, if we were to divide it, it would kind of be like this. From here south was essentially Jewish in its culture. From here to the west was essentially Greek or Roman in its culture. So you see that the place that Paul was born was right in the center of that. And so he had a dual background. He, uh, he understood the Greek mind, but he also understood the Jewish mind. He had a Greek education, although his education, and we'll tell you in a minute, it was primarily Jewish, we believe. So he was born a Roman citizen. He, wasn't, he didn't buy into that like some people could have, but he was born a Roman citizen, but he was racially a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, from which Israel's first king came. He also was named after Israel's first king, Saul or Saul. His parents were careful in their observance of the Mosaic Law, and they raised Paul as a youngster in strict accordance with it. We learn that in Philippians chapter 3. There is no question that Paul had a very unusual intellect, and he was raised in a city that ranked third on the educational scale in the ancient world behind only two other cities, Athens, which would have been way over here, 
and Alexandria, Egypt, which would have been down here. The third ranking city in the ancient world, according to ancient sources, not biblical sources, but according to ancient sources, with regard to education, was where Paul grew up. So again, God brings him up in the perfect place. The combination of Paul's intellect and opportunities for learning in Tarsus was a perfect match. Nevertheless, actually, the New Testament scholar Godet points out that Paul's education was essentially Jewish, both with respect to the instruction he received and the language that he learned. And so it would appear, it would appear that though, even though he grew up in this center of learning and was certainly exposed to Greek learning, definitely exposed to it, that his parents apparently had the idea from a fairly young age that they wanted him to go into the ministry. And they wanted him to be a rabbi. And we'll see, they're going to bring him all the way down here to, to spend his formative years in Jerusalem because his parents recognized that he had that kind of intellectual ability. A rabbi in those days was a very respected person. And so Paul had the intellect to handle that situation. And so his parents looked, looked like they pushed him in that direction, or at least encouraged him in that direction. To that end, it was at a, very, a relatively young age. We don't know exactly when, but at a relatively young age, Saul moved to Jerusalem to study with the finest Jewish scholars of his day. His mentor was a man named Gamaliel. We learn about him in the book of Acts. And Gamaliel was staunch in his Jewish orthodoxy. But according to the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary, to simplify, Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, but according to the Talmud, Gamaliel knew Greek literature better than any other doctor of the law of his day. So again, we see God places Paul in exactly the right spot in order to train him and to mold him so that Paul would come out the person that God needed him to be for that particular job. I hope you're getting the point of this. The point is that God is going to put you in exactly the right spot to have you trained and molded and shaped into the minister that God wants you to be. I'm not the only minister in the room. We've got 50 ministers in the room. If things are going right, if you're walking in fellowship with God, God has used past experiences to mold you into who you are today. Sometimes we look at past experiences, and it's like we're driving in a car, and we keep our eyes focused entirely on our rearview mirror and, and on the bad things and the rough things that have happened in our life, and then if that happens too much, we're going to crash as far as our future goes. It's dangerous to drive with our eyes in the rearview mirror entirely. But sometimes we glance up in the rearview mirror, and the things that we see are rather painful. We might even ask ourselves, how could God let that happen to me? Or let that happen to my friend or to my mom or my sister or my brother? Well, God uses those episodes, if you can get through them, if you can have the faith, and, and according to James, that faith grows into endurance, if, if you will do that, then he can use you as well. And it's not just Paul that grew up in the perfect place and the perfect time, had the perfect education and the perfect family situation. You did too, even though you might not think your family was all that perfect. God's molding you into what he wants you to be, to be his minister as well. So consider that. Sometimes people say, I think I was born a century or two too late. I belonged in the 17th century. 
No, you do. No, you don't. You, you belong exactly where you are. This is where God placed you. Don't dream about things like that. Now, you may can, you may can um, consider what it might have been like. But no, you're in the perfect place at the perfect time. God doesn't make mistakes. And he didn't with Paul. He put him in exactly the right city. And we can go back and we can look at it and say, I can see that now. Because Paul had to minister to the Gentiles, but he needed to know the Mosaic Law like nobody else ever knew it. Well, we have the luxury of looking back on that. Someday, and maybe when you're in heaven, you're going to have the luxury of looking back on your own life and the circumstances that came your way. And you'll be able to know, especially if it's in heaven, with, with perfect clarity, uh, I see why that happened now. Oh, I understand why I wasn't allowed to go to that school now. And most of the time we'll say, if, if we could, I don't know if God will run the tape of what ifs. He probably doesn't want to shock us. But if we ran the tapes of what ifs, if we had made a different decision than what we made, if God would have allowed us to do what we wanted to do instead of overruling that, if he would have answered all of our prayers, yes, that is, he might let us see the disaster that would have happened just so we can know that he's God and we're not. But Paul was a person who was in a perfect position for where he needed to be. Paul came from the very heart of Judaism and thoroughly knew and understood life under the Mosaic Law. That's very important in understanding the book of Romans. Paul was thoroughly versed in the Mosaic Law. He also had just a, a thorough knowledge of the powerlessness of the law as a means of eternal salvation. He knew it, but he also knew how powerless it was. And that's critical, too, for understanding not only Romans, but a book we studied a few months back, the book of Galatians as well. You see, if Paul wasn't who he was, and if he didn't have the education that he could have had, people could have challenged him on some of the assertions he makes here in the book of Romans. They said, well, wait a minute, Paul. You don't understand the Mosaic Law. Don't understand it at all. You're misrepresenting the Mosaic Law. But since Paul, every, everything points to the fact that Paul was perhaps the most intellectual of the rabbis of his day. They couldn't argue with him about the Mosaic Law, and that's one of the reasons why they probably hated him so much. They couldn't tackle him on an intellectual basis. So they have to go back and, and tackle, tackle him with a bunch of fighting and behind-the-scenes backbiting. So he knew that the law was insufficient to get anyone to heaven. He had seen it firsthand. On the other hand, it was important for Paul to be Roman. There was a prejudice from the Greek world at the time, and even the Roman world, although they tolerated it, but there was a prejudice toward the Greeks and the Romans against the Jews. But there was also an equal prejudice by the Jews against the Greeks and the Romans. So Paul, again, was the perfect person that could, could minister in both worlds. John couldn't. Peter couldn't. Peter was the perfect person to minister to the Jewish world. But Paul, who knew the law, every bit as well, are probably better than Peter, because Paul is studying in seminary while Peter's fishing the exact same time. Paul is the one that could step into both worlds and minister into both worlds. Paul was a man who can interact in both cultures without apology. Something that's interesting to me, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I don't know the answer to it. We're going to have to wait and consider this when we get to heaven. But Paul makes no mention 
of ever meeting Jesus before his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. And that's led most modern scholars, emphasis on modern, to believe that the two did not, in fact, ever cross paths. Now, many of the early church fathers and most all the reformers believed that Paul and Jesus probably had met, but modern scholarship has rejected that. Luther was certain in his writings that Jesus and Paul had met. This is a curious issue. It's one I'd like to get cleared up someday in heaven. But we do know this. Paul was a student in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' ministry there. Jerusalem was not that big. On feast days, it could have grown to 250,000. Some, one estimates, even 2.5 million people, although that's probably an exaggeration. Ordinarily, Jerusalem had about 40,000 people in it. Paul ministered at the temple as a rabbi. Jesus taught at the temple as Lord and as rabbi. So it's interesting speculation, although Paul chooses not to mention it. It's possible that Paul was out of town on some missionary activity, for part of the time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, but surely Paul would have attended the feasts in Jerusalem on a regular basis, because after all he says, according to his own testimony, he was a strict observer of the Mosaic Law. So he had to come back for the Passover, at the very least. And if you remember our study of the life of Christ, where did Jesus go to minister and to teach when he came to Jerusalem? right into the temple, into the heart of Judaism. So my guess is that the two had crossed paths. My guess is that at the very least, Paul was a face in the crowd watching this man teach. I don't know if Paul ever interacted with him. I don't know why the Holy Spirit wouldn't have, wouldn't have told us that if he did. But it's my guess that Paul had indeed observed at least Jesus teach. And... If not, it would have been a miracle in itself to keep the two separated as many times as Jesus was there and Paul was there, and they went to the, they were in the same circles. It's not like they had different occupations, so they'd be on different sides of the town. They were, there was a magnet at that temple that would have drawn anybody that was interested in spiritual things, and the temple wasn't that big. Was he present for the events of the crucifixion? We just don't know. The Holy Spirit, again, doesn't choose to record that information, but I suspect so. Again, because it's the Passover. Now, did he go out and watch the crucifixion? It's fruitless, fruitless speculation. But any good Jew would have been in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. This is what we do know, though. Two short years, around two short years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, Paul participated in the stoning of Stephen. And then he left Damascus to persecute more Christians. And he was on that trip that Paul was confronted with the resurrected Christ and came to trust him for eternal life. So in the first verse, Paul introduces himself first as a slave of Christ, then as an apostle, and finally as one who's set apart for God's gospel. First, a doulos Christu Iesu, a slave of Christ Jesus. In most of his epistles, Paul begins the letter with an appeal to his apostolic office, like in First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and First and Second Timothy. But here, just like he does in Philippians and Titus, he begins by identifying himself as a slave, a doulos, of Jesus Christ, or of Christ Jesus. He asserts at the outset the completeness of his commission and commitment to Jesus Christ. To the Greek mind... The idea of being a slave or a servant of someone 
was simply abhorrent. But to the Jewish mind, it was not. The Jewish worshiper quite naturally thought of himself as God's slave. The noun is used in the Old Testament in both the plural and the singular for the nation Israel as a whole. The nation Israel was the servant of the Lord. And great figures from the past are often referred to as Yahweh's slave or Yahweh's servant, particularly Moses, Joshua, David, and most all the prophets, a significant number of them. In fact, the Messiah himself was called by the term servant of the Lord more often than he was called Mashiach or Messiah in the Old Testament. So to a Jewish mind, the way that Paul opens the letter is, is pretty powerful. To the, to the strictly Greek mind, it's rather shocking as to why someone would voluntarily call themselves a servant of another. But for Paul, and listen carefully to this, every believer in Jesus Christ is a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ, indicating that we belong totally to him, and our allegiance is completely to him. Paul understood that we all, as human beings, seek the favor of someone. We either seek the favor of our fellow man, or we seek the favor of God. At any one particular time, you might vacillate back and forth, but we all want someone's approval. Paul puts it this way in the book of Galatians. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now he says this right after he just kind of opened up a can with regard to the Galatians' understanding of the gospel. And he lets them know that their teaching was absolutely wrong. He said, Now am I still trying to please men? One of the key words in that text is, If I were still trying to please men. See, Paul came from a culture where he was wanting to be a man pleaser. And most of us fade into that from time to time. We forget whose evaluation is really important. It's Jesus Christ's evaluation of you that really matters. It's not my evaluation. It's, it's not your friend's evaluation. It's as much as important as it is. It's not your spouse's evaluation. And most of us at the judgment seat better be really glad that it's not our spouse that gets to choose it. It's God's evaluation that matters. And Paul understood this. You know, I don't know how you feel about it either. When I was at Dallas Seminary, some of the students there had a real problem with this phrase. As a matter of fact, they didn't want it translated slave of Jesus Christ because they said that's got such negative overtones with me that I don't want that used. And I said, well, talk to the Holy Spirit about it because he's the one that used the word. Doulos means slave. Now, we can, we can temper it a little bit if you prefer, and call it a servant, or a bondservant, as most of the texts do. But listen, here's the deal. The, the problem people have with slavery is an abuse, many, many abuses that have occurred throughout human history. Cruelty, meanness, self-centeredness on the part of the slave owner. And that is to be considered abhorrent. However, if your master is Jesus Christ, I personally have no problem calling myself a slave of Jesus Christ on bended knee, and I hope you don't either. If you do, if you do, at least in your own terminology, why don't you avoid calling him the Lord Jesus Christ? At least just for a little while until you can get this right because you'll be hypocritical. Because that's what the Lord part in there means. 
the kurios, that means that he's the boss and we're not. And we are not in any position to argue with any of the decisions that he makes. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul is a slave of Jesus Christ, but so are you. If you're walking in fellowship with God, you'll understand that. Whether you, under, whether you understand it or not, you still are. Just like he's Lord, whether we accept it or not, he is. It would, it would do us good to accept it. It's likely here that Paul also has in mind, in addition to his personal commitment to Christ, a special office or calling. So he is, in a special sense, God's slave. And by that he means he's God's messenger. So the words that he presents in this book aren't going to be his words. They may be his personality. But this is a message from God. The second phrase is called an apostle. The word kletos, which is the word that's translated called in the New American Standard, is a verbal adjective expressing the thought of divine calling in opposition to human self-appointment. So it's not on the basis of presumptuous human ambition, but on the basis of God's appointment that Paul's an apostle. There was not one ounce of self-promotion in the Apostle Paul's ministry. Not one ounce. God allowed, God, uh, Paul allowed God to promote him, allowed God to plan his ministry, allowed God to advance him into the position that he advanced him. Paul never forced any of it. Self-promotion is fatal to the believer's spiritual life. We're here to glorify God, not ourselves. I want to say it again because that might be the most important thing I tell you tonight. Listen carefully. Self-promotion is fatal to the believer's spiritual life. It's not just damaging to it. It will be fatal if you promote yourself in the Christian life because we are not here to worship any expositor of the Word of God. We are here to worship the God that someone hopefully does exposition about. It's all about Jesus Christ. If you died for my sins, I'd be happy to glorify you. But since you didn't, I'm not going to do it. And since I didn't die for your sins, please don't glorify me. I don't want to be in a position of stealing some of God's glory. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that we look to. And Paul never had a problem with that. I think it's because he had been in, in such a state of despair with regard to his previous life, he knew he calls himself the least of all the saints. In a sense, he was. He understood the concept of humility. We're here to glorify God. We're not here to glorify ourselves. And by the way, I hope that we will have the understanding that it's our responsibility to put God at the center of our life, to have a God-centered relationship with him without, and this is very subtle, but be careful, without expecting God to in turn have a man-centered relationship with us. You get the subtlety of what I'm talking about? You see, God doesn't have a man-centered idea when it comes to us. He has a God-centered idea. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's not self-centeredness on his part. It's honesty on his part. If he placed us at the center of his universe... He wouldn't be God. So we've got to have God at the center of our universe. 
and understand at the same time the, the feeling is he loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He has a relationship with us. But we can't insist that him, he in turn then have me at the center of his universe. It's not the way it works. Talk more about that as we go through the book of Romans. Apostolos is the word for apostles. The word translated apostle has the basic meaning of messenger or delegate or one sent on behalf of someone else. In calling himself an apostle, Paul clearly presupposes a special commissioning by the risen Christ to a limited group within a limited period of time following his resurrection. All I mean by that is that there are no apostles today. With whatever apologies may be due to certain denominations, there are no apostles today. In fact, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15:8 that he was the last of all. He was the last of the ones that were in that category. There are three categories of apostles that you might have noticed in the New Testament as you study through it. First, the twelve, those who were with Jesus Christ, of course, minus Judas. And then we can debate whether Matthias was a legitimate apostle or not. I lean toward the fact that he was. But that's certainly debatable. It's not something that we're going to draw the line in the sand on. But that's, those are the twelve that were with Jesus and were called apostles because of that. There were a few, and Matthias might have been in this category, that had a gift of apostleship, like, for example, Barnabas. Barnabas, Barnabas wasn't one of the inner crowd of Jesus' disciples, but he is called an apostle in Acts 14.4. And then you have a special apostle, and that's the apostle Paul, Acts 9, Galatians chapter 1, and verse 12. Here he announces the title, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called as an apostle. He announces his title without making any great point of it, though he'll shortly emphasize two main characteristics of, an, of apostleship that relate to him personally. First, it was an apostleship that was given through the exalted Christ. And secondly, his apostleship is going to be to the Gentiles. Paul had seen the resurrected Christ, and he had exercised the gifts associated with apostleship, such as healing, and miracles, in order to establish his authority as a messenger from God. Since we have God's complete and coherent message written down to us today, since the canon of Scripture is finished, uh, temporary spiritual gifts are not necessary. The so-called sign gifts are not necessary anymore. Paul had them. But even toward the end of Paul's ministry, he couldn't heal at will one of his very close friends. So the purpose of miracles was to authenticate a message and the messenger as being genuinely from God. So the phrase called an apostle stresses again that Paul was God's messenger and this message was from God. And finally, the last phrase, set apart for the gospel of God. This phrase, also can be translated separated unto the gospel of God, is parallel in the grammar of this sentence to called an apostle. Paul is separated from his past life to God's gospel. The term Pharisee carried this same meaning of separation. Paul was a very proud Pharisee at one point in his life. He had separated himself from the lawless culture around him to a life of study and practice of the Mosaic Law, or at least the external form of it. 
you know, if you were to transport yourself back into the times of Paul and Jesus in Jerusalem, you would sympathize with the Pharisees. Now, we don't now because we see how they treated our Lord, and I don't sympathize with how they did that. But I can sympathize with a sense of their desire for separation. The Christian church has done it too in the monastic movement, you know, in a couple hundred years after Christ. Everybody just said, to heck with this culture, I'm going out into the desert. I'll form a Christian community out here where we don't have to bother with this, with halftime celebrations. You see, that's, that's what they were sick of at the time. Same way we're sick of stuff like that. Well, that's what the Pharisees were. They were, that's what it means to be set apart. So Paul was immersed in this culture and he set himself apart to study the Mosaic Law and to live strictly under the Mosaic Law. That's, a, that's the Pharisee. You see what Paul's doing here? He was a Pharisee in his past life who had totally set himself apart from his culture unto this study and living, living out the Mosaic Law. Now he says, unlike my former times as a Pharisee, I am set apart for something different. I'm set apart unto God's gospel. Now, if he's set apart unto God's gospel, he can't do that geographically. You can't go live on an island by yourself or with a dozen or 20 or 30 other believers and say you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ if everybody around you is a believer. Sometimes you've got to go out. You, you, almost always you have to go out. If I was to say, listen, I want, I'd like to have a, a, a session of witnessing right now. Just turn to your neighbor and tell them about Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be kind of silly? It may not be in, in some. I mean, there may be someone here who's never trusted Jesus Christ, but I look at all your faces, and I, if you haven't, you certainly have the opportunity to, because I know all of you. But you've got to go out. And so he, he was separated at one time as a Pharisee. You see the beauty of this now? Now he's separated as a minister of God's gospel. Again, not his gospel. The way that genitive works, it's God's gospel that he's separated unto. He's not separated unto a system like he was under the Mosaic Law. He's actually set apart unto God. And specifically here, God's gospel or God's good news. There was a difference between the separation of a Pharisee and the separation Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. What Paul means is that his life is no longer about him. It's about service to the God that he loved. Paul's life was Christ-centered. So, in verse 1, Paul introduces himself. He is a servant of God, an apostle sent from God, who lives a life dedicated to, to the service of God. We don't have the middle of those items on our resume. We don't have the office of apostle. But Paul's model is one that all believers would do well to emulate. First, a recognition of who we are and who we belong to. We are all servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. And I hope, like myself, that you don't mind that, that you would wear that as a badge of honor. Because it's truly not about us. It's about who we work for or who we serve. And secondly, Paul had, and we should have as well, a consuming something that consumes our life, a consuming dedication to faithfully serve the one who sought us, the one who saved us, and the one who every day keeps us by his grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the introduction 
to the human author of this letter, but help us not to, to focus our attention on him, but the model that he set for us. Father, I thank you that we're your slave. I can't, in my wildest dreams, imagine a better master. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our lives to transform us into the type of servant that you would want us to be so that we could finish our time here on earth glorifying you and not ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.